If we haven't met yet, my name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors here, and I would just love to meet you. So uh, please come up and say hi to me after the service. I'll either be up here or in the back, but please come say hi to me. Uh, The next psalm we're looking at is Psalm 17. We're spending a week uh, during the summer, every week, uh, on a a different psalm and just working our way through from one going forward. Uh, And this is our second summer of doing this, and now we're at, uh, at Psalm 17. And what this is, is it's an individual cry of lament, and it's a plea for justice. That's what we see here. We don't know the specific circumstances uh, that led to David writing this psalm. For him, this no doubt applied to some specific situation, but it's general enough that it can be used by you or me or any one of God's people for articulating a certain cause for the Lord. What it tells us what it looks like to bring a, a need before God. Uh, several years ago, I heard the story of a young missionary who was traveling to France to serve. This was 1956, and apparently this missionary was uh, traveling by ship across the Atlantic, and the captain of the ship knew who he was and asked him to lead a worship service for the passengers and the crew, and of course, can't say no to that. So he obliged, and uh, he was struck at the beginning of the service as he looked out over the congregation. He had no idea who would be there, uh, but apparently the former president of the United States, Harry Truman, comes just walking in and takes a seat, and he looks out there, and uh, service went well, apparently. And after the service, this missionary standing in the back greeting people as they leave, and Harry Truman, can you imagine, uh, just comes up to him and introduces himself to this missionary, and uh, the missionary explains, I'm, I'm going overseas to serve, and uh, would you please pray for me? And apparently, the president, former president, was very surprised to hear that. He was genuinely taken back, and he said, me, pray for you? No, you pray for me. It's as if some, some people's prayers matter and other people's prayers maybe matter a little less. Here's the point. Is that every psalm we look at comes with a claim that your prayers, no matter who you are, no matter your voice, no matter what your life looks like, your cries matter to God. They are heard with the sympathetic ears of a loving father. And what we have here is a prayer asking for justice. And it's laid at the heart, laid at the feet of a loving father. So let's look together. This is Psalm 17. I'll read all 15 verses. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps... I've held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. 
Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They cast their eyes, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we come before you and we ask that you be with us this morning as we hear from your word and as we consider the truth of these things, will you be speaking the truth of who Jesus is to our hearts that we need to hear so badly? Help us to lean in, to be present, to hear what you would have us hear. And would you help me, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you with the things that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, earlier this week, I was talking about this passage with Jeff, which is always a good idea. And he reminded me of the story of Sisyphus. And if you're not familiar, Sisyphus is a a Greek myth. The Greeks really knew how to write a myth. (laughs) Uh, Sisyphus was a king, uh, and he was known for his cunning and his hubris, and apparently along the way he crossed Zeus, the god, uh, several times and made Zeus angry with him, and as a punishment, uh, Sisyphus was consigned to spend an eternity in Hades, this was his eternal punishment, rolling a boulder up a hill over and over and over again only to see this boulder roll back down and resume its previous resting spot. Now, could you imagine what that would be like? Just how awful that would be? The timeless exercise of futility? One person said it this way, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name, but he called this the unspeakable penalty in which the whole being is exerted toward accomplishing nothing. Futility is the horror of this story. And it comes to us in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways, and often in the places that matter to us the most. I've heard people articulate feelings of, arti- uh, of, of futility when they're talking about their most valuable relationships, like their friends or, or, or family or, or their marriage. Like, no matter how hard I try, it feels like it's just not getting any better. I've heard people articulate feelings of utility when it comes to their finances. Like, no matter how disciplined they are or how many tools they use, it's just very hard to get ahead. And circumstances beyond their control... Uh, make, make it difficult. The feelings of futility is really discouraging. 
I've heard people articulate feelings of futility when it comes to their work. Like, no matter how hard I work, I feel like I'm just accomplishing nothing, or my, my boss doesn't see me or appreciate me. I just feel like I'm rolling a boulder up a hill over and over and over again. But I think this particularly applies when it comes to our cries for justice. Like, no matter how loud we cry or how hard we work for it, it can feel like just nothing is getting any better. I really appreciated the way Matt began the service today and talked about how uh, this past week has represented the intersection of what can be a lot of hard things. And David says, hear my just cause, O Lord, and attend to my cry. In a lot of ways, what David is crying out for is our cry too. But what does it look like? Well, I just want to say three things but that I see in this passage that David does that I think would help us as we think about what it looks like to cry out to the Lord for justice. First, David draws near, and then he describes his predicament. He, 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 uh, he, what does he do? He, uh, oh, he describes his need. He draws near, he describes his need, and finally he announces his hope, okay? He draws near, describes his need, announces his hope. The first thing David does is he draws near to God with this prayer. The, the, the first piece of this, of this prayer is really about David drawing near to the Lord. And what I see is a why, a what, and a who here, okay? So first why, verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eye behold what is right. He draws near to God because he knows that in God's presence, truth is upheld. Truth is truly valued. I get the sense that he's surrounded by people that, uh, for whom tr- they have a pliable relationship with truth and are perpetuating an injustice against him because of it. But when he draws near to the Lord, he knows that truth will be upheld, that there's truly, a truly righteous cause would be honored by God. That's the why. The what. What happens when he draws near to God? Well, verse 3 tells us that uh, just as he is bringing a case before the Lord, not just is the case tested, but David himself is tested. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. So not only is David drawing near to the Lord with a cry for justice, but this passage tells us that he's been ruminating with God over this case uh, for some time now. God has investigated him. And it seems like David is claiming innocence here, that he has nothing to hide from the Lord. He comes before, the, as he draws near to the Lord, he draws near with a, with a clean conscience. And it's in this place where we see him make claims about who God is. Look at verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love. Wondrously show is an appeal for a miraculous intervention. A good example of this would be the story of Sarah and Abram. When God, uh, when, when God promised them a baby, they were, in their, they were in old age. The idea of them having a baby would sound, would, it would just require a miracle. And uh, it would sound so crazy that Sarah laughed. And God responded to Sarah's laugh saying, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Wondrously show would be an appeal for this miraculous intervention. He then calls him the savior 
of those who seek refuge in him. This is how David knows God. This is who God is. He also knows him as someone who wields a powerful hand. These are all claims that David issues, that he's appealing to about who God is. But But he doesn't stop there because David also begins to make claims about who he is before God. He already pled his innocence, but he calls himself the apple of God's eye. That's beautiful language, isn't it? The apple of God's eye. And he's asking for protection like a mother bird protects its young under, under its wings from predators. Um, in the shadow of your wings is, 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 is what he's doing. Can, can you just get a sense for the intimacy that's enjoyed between David and God as David draws near to God? Look, in the beginning, what it looked like was an appeal of a, of a, of a case before a judge in a courtroom. But, and he's pleading his innocence. But very quickly, what we see is that David is appealing to a relationship with God where God cares deeply for him. And if we look at some of the language that David is using, we can see where he got this idea from. Uh, because uh, the word for steadfast love is, is used overwhelmingly, it's a radiant word that's used overwhelmingly in the Bible to describe God's steadfast love toward his covenant people. And God, when God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, it says uh, that, that uh, he led them out by the power of his right hand. In the passage that we read earlier from Deuteronomy 32, that's uh, Moses' song after the, their exodus. And it says that God kept them, God's covenant people, as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest. Is this sounding familiar? Flutter, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings. The Lord guided them. God has this established pattern of leading his people to trust the love that God has for him. And here's what I want you to see. That David isn't making this appeal because he's God's king over his people. David doesn't get to make this presumption because he's powerful and he's privileged and he, he, has, the, he has the privilege to be able to bend the ear of God whenever he wants to. Or because he's influential. David can make this appeal presuming God's love for him simply because he's a member of God's covenant people. And if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can too. That when you draw near to God, you are drawing near as someone who is the apple of his eye. That you are someone who can hide in the shadow of his wings. That you don't have to be afraid. To draw, before, to draw near to an all-powerful God. Because on you rests his favor. Just by your faith in Jesus Christ. And your, the, and your member as one of God's covenant people. But this privilege of David's also belongs to you. And because you're a beloved member of his people. You're invited to bring your needs before him. And look at how David describes his need. 
Well, first we get a sense that, uh, that he's, uh, we get a picture that he's really afraid. That there's cause for real fear here. Twice he mentions that he's surrounded by his enemies, so there's no escaping what's before him. He calls them deadly and wicked. And in verse 12, he likens them to a wild predator that only, lurks, that only looks to devour I mean, there's real reasons for fear for David. He also describes a state of helplessness. You see this in verse 10? They close their hearts to pity. This is, uh, he's describing the unchanging state of obstinacy of his people. Like, they, they, they are not people that can be reasoned with. They can't be talked off the ledge, so, uh, so to speak. They, they speak arrogantly. This is the rhetoric of, uh, of destructive bravado that David is dealing with. And if you've ever been on the other side of something like this, you just know how scary that is. Everything feels like it's out of control for David. And, and, and there, it feels like there's just nothing he can do to help himself in this situation. And none of these clues indicate uh, what exactly specifically David was dealing with. Like we can't, this is one of those Psalms that we can't trace them and land them in a certain place that David, of David's life. It could have been anything. I mean, some people have speculated that he's dealing with a real credible threat of violence. Like there's an assassination planned or something like that and he's appealing to God for help. It could be that. Other people speculate that this metaphors for violence actually have to do with more of a character assassination, that maybe his reputation is being slandered. Some people even think that some pieces of this psalm lead them to think that there was a rumor of him taking a bribe and that he was perverting justice in some way. I mean, any of that's possible, or it could be something that we didn't even think about. Uh, We don't know, but we don't really need to know, because... There's not one of us here in this room that doesn't know or isn't somewhat acquainted with the feelings of fear and helplessness that we see in this passage. Did you know that stories about fear and helplessness are all over the Bible? I mean, there are all kinds of them, okay? And often, often they're located precisely in the place where God is working through his, through his people, Take the story of Joseph. I mean, that, that is a fascinating story. Joseph, the youngest brother of 12, was also the apple of his father's eye, right? And, uh, and, and, um, and they knew it, and they hated him for it. In fact, they were so jealous that they, uh, that they kidnapped him, and they faked his death, and then they threw him down in a well before they, um, before they sold him into slavery. Now, was Joseph... Was Joseph perfectly innocent? Well, no, I don't think that he was perfectly wise. I mean, he told told his older brothers a story about uh, a dream that he had where they would all one day bow down to him. I I mean, I don't know. If you have older brothers, I don't know if that's a wise move, right? Okay, but he didn't necessarily deserve this, right? Like, you could call that that he's a victim of an injustice that's done against him. And I just can't imagine the fear and the helplessness that he would have felt as he's making his way toward Egypt with a bunch of slave traders. Because listen, that is what the presence of injustice does, is that it breeds fear. And it breeds a sense of helplessness. And what the psalm is teaching us 
And what the story of Joseph is teaching us, and what the story of David is teaching us, is that God cares deeply about the presence of injustice. And not only God cares, but God's people care too. We should not miss the fact that this is an individual lament taken up in the context of a corporate worship service. That not everybody in the room was feeling this way, but yet everyone in the room is praying this prayer. That they're taking up somebody else's burden for the sake of the other. That, 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 uh, that there, that, that, and I say that because there's some of us in this room that might be looking at this and feeling it very strongly right now. Like you can identify with what David is saying. But not everybody could. But when one of us has this burden, that we all share in it. That we, that we pray these prayers together as a shared body taking on each other's burdens. And the good news is, is that just as we share each other's burden, we also share each other's hope. That we bring together, that we come together in a shared hope. Look at this announcement of hope that David makes at the end of this passage. Uh, he, He makes a request and he announces his expectation. Those are not the same thing. He, he, he articulates an ask, but he also announces an expectation. First, his ask or his request is in verse 13. Oh, Lord, confront him, subdue him. Stop this is the ask, okay? That's the request that he makes. But then he goes on to articulate an expectation. Look at it, this in verse 17. They are men of the world. Sorry, 14. There's, there is no verse 17. <laughs> Uh, They are men of the world whose portion is in this life, but they leave their abundance to their infant. This this means that wherever they're going, their treasure is temporary. They can't take it with them. So they're going to give all of their wealth to their children one day. Uh, uh, Whatever they might gain from perpetuating this injustice against them, in the end, it's fleeting, is what David is saying here. One commentator called this a description of the prosperous lowlands, right? So even though they look like they have prosperity, they're profiting off of what they, they uh, get, they're actually living life in the lowlands. This is what Paul is describing in Philippians 3 when he says, their God is their belly, their, their end is their destruction. It's like David is saying, stop them. That's my ask. But if you don't, they will one day meet justice in the end. That's where he's actually drawing his peace. But but his end is different. As for me, I shall one day behold your face in righteousness. What is David talking about? Well, he's talking about nothing less than the anticipation of of eternal fellowship with God where he will one day be face to face with him. When I awake, some translations include when I awake from the sleep of death. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And when that happens, continuing in verse 15, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's hope and your hope and my hope all rest in the expectation that there will come a time when he will behold God face to face. What he knows now by faith, 
He will one day know by sight. And so the question that's left for us is how does David's prayer actually become our prayer? How does David's hope become our hope? I don't know this for sure, but I'd like to believe that John was thinking about Psalm 17 when he wrote this in 1 John chapter 3. I really should memorize this verse. Uh, We use it in an assurance of pardon every now and then. But he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. It's who you are. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see the parallels? I shall behold you face to face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We shall see him as he is. It's no mistake that the hope bound up in this prayer finds its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one person that can plead the innocence that we see early in this psalm. I don't know about you, But every time I looked at this, I thought, I'm disqualified immediately. And while David might have been innocent in this particular situation, he certainly wasn't perfect in life. But there is one man whose obedience before God was perfect. And there is one man who entrusted himself to God's steadfast love when he was surrounded by violent men. And there is one man who kept his eyes fixed on the world to come. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's the reason that we can say with hope, just like David, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake from death, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I don't know about you, but I needed to see this this week. And in particular this week. Because what's left for us, if all these things are true... What's left for us is to live out the promise of what will one day be. To lean into our days, as difficult as they might be sometimes. Living out the promise of what will one day be. A pastor I love, he he pastors in Baltimore. His name is Mike Kanjan. Talks about the time uh, when he was pastoring there in 2015. And if you're familiar at all, Baltimore was suffering with with riots. It was the aftermath of the death of Freddie Gray. The the city was just a place, he called it a place paralyzed with grief and despair. And it was then that the Baltimore Orioles played what was possibly the strangest baseball game ever played because there were such real concerns, security concerns, about what would happen if you let a bunch of fans into the baseball game that they decided they would play before an empty stadium. Now, it was televised. You can go see YouTube videos of this. Um, and uh, it just seems weird, you know, <laughs> like you can hear the players talking to each other. And there were even some thought the, the players could actually hear the announcers in the booth. You know, I mean, it's just a weird dynamic. And it really should have been another evidence of deflating reality in the midst of a deflating situation in the middle of a deflating year for Baltimore. But, but if that's true, nobody told the players that. 
Because apparently they were, I mean, they were, um, they were doing everything as if the fans were actually there. They would run and like catch a fly ball and then run to the stands and throw it into the stands as if somebody was there to catch it. And they were like doing everything that players do to entertain the fans that were there. And Mike, Mike says they weren't faking it. There's no faking it. They were living it. They were living in light of the promise of what will one day be and giving the people of Baltimore a picture of what they will enjoy again together one day. And friends, that's my challenge for you, that as we bring our needs before the Lord, as we articulate causes for justice that we and our brothers and sisters need to hear as we bring them and lay them at the feet of a loving father, that we then live out the life. We learn to do what David is learning to do here. That we learn to live out a life, even in difficult circumstances, in light of the promise of what will one day be. What will that look like for you? Let me pray. Oh, Jesus. You are the reason that we can look at our days with hope. You are the reason that we can look at all the things, all the places where we feel an overwhelming sense of futility and know it won't always be that way. You are the reason that we can look forward and say, Behold, I shall see him face to face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness. Oh, Father, I pray that you would hold us to that day and help us as we seek to live in light of the promise of what one day will be. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.